And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, Have a seat, grab a beverage, because it's time for the Force 5 Podcast. I am Jason Kleberg, the host of this one-man operation, and if this is your first time, Force 5 is the show that forces a guest to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we talk about our picks on air. This week's guest is podcaster Dion Sanchez, and the topic she chose is top five remakes. And I can almost guarantee you that I've got at least one pick on my list that you'll be surprised is a remake. Before we get to those, however, let's talk about some of the films I've seen this past week. Three of the films I saw this week were from 2021, so we'll start with the one that everybody's talking about, and that's The Suicide Squad. Let's meet your team. It's okay, I'm not okay. Each member is chosen for his or her own completely unique set of abilities. I need to feel the raindrops on my head, on my head. Hey guys, sorry I'm late. Had to go number two. Good to know. Is this thing a dog? A dog? What kind of dog do you think it is, mate? I'm gonna go with Afghan hound. Oh my god, is it a werewolf? Yo, they sent me next to a werewolf? Yo, let me out! Yeah, he's not a werewolf, okay? He's a weasel. He's harmless. I mean, he's not harmless. He's killed 27 children, but, you know. The newest iteration of the Suicide Squad is dumped on the island of Corto Maltese. Their mission? Find and destroy the information related to Project Starfish, a secret World War II project still being worked on in the depths of a mysterious tower. About halfway through the first Suicide Squad, I remember thinking, this is one of the worst movies I've seen in years. The script was terrible, everything seemed forced, certain jokes seemed like they were just 80 yard in after the movie was shot, the music felt so ham-fisted, the main characters not named Harley Quinn were lifeless and boring, and the whole thing just felt neutered. It was a mess, and it's been a long time since I walked out of a theater feeling that disappointed. I remember telling my wife when we walked out of the theater, that it seemed like they had a movie made, saw the success of Guardians of the Galaxy, and then brutalized whatever cut they had to make it fit that mold, which later we kind of found out was true. So for the second Suicide Squad film, instead of copying Guardians of the Galaxy, DC just hired the director. The film starts out with several of the characters from the first tale still riding into battle, but James Gunn, the director, quickly lets us know this is a brand new kind of Suicide Squad with a hard left turn to another team. And let me tell you, this new Suicide Squad is fun as fuck. Harley Quinn is our main returning villain. Idris Elba plays Bloodsport, a master assassin with a fear of rats. Unfortunately for him, Rat Catcher 2 is also on his team, and she can control rats. Daniela Melchior absolutely steals the show in this role. John Cena plays Peacemaker, Bloodsport's team rival. He's great in this. King Shark is a walking, talking shark, just looking for food. And uh, finally, Polka Dot Man rounds out the squad as a villain who throws polka dots. Yes, he throws polka dots and has severe mommy issues. Every character is fun. Every character has personality. Every one of them gets their moment to shine. And we actually get to see significant growth in the character of Harley Quinn, which I thought was great. James Gunn leans right into the R rating. This movie is bloody as hell. It is unforgiving. People get smashed, eaten, blown to bits, chopped to pieces. It leans heavily into the comedy as well that the first Suicide Squad failed miserably at. But Gunn is just too damn talented to miss. There were several laugh out loud moments here. The dialogue was always very quick and always witty. The action is plentiful and very, very fun. And and Gunn's script uses the tropey, we need to battle a threat that could end the entire world motivation that I normally hate, but it never felt that way. It never felt that big, which was nice for a change with, with a movie with enormous stakes. The visuals are really great as well, and the way that the text was used on screen to convey information was stunning, particularly one shot that used rooftop clutter to let us know where we were headed. In summation, this is exactly what I'm looking for in an R-rated superhero film. Pack it with great actors who are ready to give us some cheese. Give me fun, unrelenting action. Go for the hard R. Give me some surprising deaths. And give me an interesting villain. The Suicide Squad, the first one's just called Suicide Squad, The Suicide Squad was an absolute blast. 
If I had to level any complaints, it's that the script is a little predictable after the first 20 minutes and it is a little long, but I was never checking my watch. Here's to hoping James Gunn directs a sequel starring The Weasel. I also watched a pair of documentaries this week, the first of which is called Val. Hi, my name's Val. I don't do this with every interview I go on. Take you inside my home? I don't, but I'm going to. My name is Val Kilmer. I'm an actor. I've lived a magical life. And I've captured quite a bit of it. Yeah, push the button. I was the first guy I knew to own a video camera. Here we are, filming ourselves. Uh, is that a it's video rolling, camera? yeah. Oh, that's really cool, Val. I have thousands of hours of videotapes and film reels that I've shot throughout my life and career. Shut the video camera off. I will keep it on until we're rehearsing. Oh, damn. I was recently diagnosed with throat cancer. I'm still recovering, and it is difficult to talk and to be understood. But I want to tell my story more than ever. In 2017, Val Kilmer took on his most daring role yet, throat cancer survivor. Now, as the sun sets on his very interesting career, he wanted to tell his story. Unfortunately, his battle with cancer has essentially taken his voice. So his son Jack narrates tales from his upbringing to his Mark Twain one-man stage play passion project and everything in between. Try saying that three times fast. Mark Twain one-man stage play passion project. I like Val Kilmer. I've always liked Val Kilmer. When I was younger, I liked him for his performances as Iceman in Top Gun and Doc Hollywood in Tombstone. As I got older, I began to respect his method acting and the craft that went into his more nuanced performances like his turn as Jim Morrison in The Doors, John Holmes in Wonderland, and of course his role as Gay Perry in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I think is fucking brilliant. This documentary runs through those roles and more, all presented by Val Kilmer himself in the form of old home movies. It seemed like he always had a video camera in hand, and I would love to know how much footage the directors and the editor had to sift through to craft the story that they wanted to tell. Val's home movies show the origins for his love of acting, as he and his two brothers used what was available to tell visual stories. They also show us family tragedy and loss. They show us candid moments from the sets of films like Top Gun, Batman Forever, and even the disastrous production that was The Island of Dr. Moreau. In between the home movies, we spend time with Val Kilmer in present day, using a button on his neck to talk with a voice that doesn't sound anything like the Val Kilmer of old, but certainly contains the same energy that he's always had. There's really no story here or grand thread to pull at. It's just Val Kilmer telling stories about his journey through Hollywood. One of the more interesting parts of the film shows Val reckoning with the fact that he now travels the world signing autographs from his past films, living in that past and using those older properties like Batman to get paid. Unfortunately, these more interesting contemplative moments are few and far between. My other favorite part in the film is when it showed Kilmer's old movies that he made as audition tapes. He filmed homemade auditions for Full Metal Jacket, Goodfellas, and another that would actually land him a job, The Doors. When I see a biopic or a documentary coming out that lists the artist as the subject of said movie as a producer, I have to admit, I get a little worried. With an element of control over the material, you have to wonder what unflattering material will land on the cutting room floor, like Dr. Dre for Straight Outta Compton or uh, Bohemian Rhapsody with Queen. I believe that Val is Val Kilmer's honest story, but I don't think that it's the whole story. The film glosses over the rumors that Kilmer was extremely hard to work with, and although other actors have straight up refuted those rumors, it would have been nice to hear Val touch on those a bit more. I'd also have liked a little bit more around the filming of The Island of Dr. Moreau, as the Lost Souls documentary painted Val Kilmer as an absolute shit on that set. Again, there are multiple sides to every story, I'd just like to have heard his side in more detail. The film also skirts right by his divorce, and is limited to him mentioning that he was served with his divorce papers on set, and one audio clip of a phone call with his now ex-wife, but we never actually get to learn what got him to that point. Val shows an extremely talented actor at what could be the end of his road. I found that it was a nice time capsule and a pretty honest insight into the roots of his love for acting, but I found the overall movie a bit lacking in depth. If you're a Val Kilmer fan or a fan of acting and actors in general, this is an easy one to recommend. Personally, I hope Val Kilmer keeps writing, I hope he, he continues to get well and sticks around for a long time to come, because he's always been very talented. 
The other 2021 documentary I watched is probably the scariest movie that I've seen in a very, very long time. Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. How you guys doing today? Welcome to Woodstock. There is a sixth sense that you develop when you spend your life going to venues. Woodstock, baby. I can tell you a hundred feet away what the energy in that venue is gonna be like. It was not your parents' Woodstock. We got off the bus and I was like, something's not right. It was like thousand degrees. I think we should leave. It's so hot here. Water it was four dollars a bottle, which is a ridiculous cost. The porta potties unusable. You had kids rolling around in what they thought was mud. In an environment where exploiting women, you could get away with it. You could feel something bubbling. In pop culture, there's this dark energy coming from young white males that entertainment is perpetuating. You have a crowd who are excited, inebriated, and you give them a band to help them release that energy. What do you think is going to happen? This HBO documentary covers the three days of Woodstock 99, an event that went from a bunch of angry early third white males rocking out to a bunch of very angry early third white males raping women and burning the festival to the ground. Watching this 22 years after the event happened gave me anxiety. I am not a music festival person. Even if I like the artists, you have to imagine that the sound quality alone is going to be shit just based on acoustics. And with festival crowds, you have to compete with people who don't care about the artists you do, a lack of things like food, water, bathrooms, and shade, and from personal experience, large crowds of rowdy people are generally filled with assholes. Woodstock 99 had all of those things, and Limp Bizkit. Nowadays, you find this kind of anger in video game lobbies, but in 1999, they gathered in Rome, New York for the perfect storm of white angst. 400,000 men with their hats on backwards who didn't give a shit about the original Woodstock were angry about who knows what and ready to snap, and during this festival, they did. The festival's infrastructure failed, the security guards just seemed to leave, and these new metal-loving dickheads tore the place apart, looted the joint, set fire to everything, and sexually assaulted women left and right. It's a disgusting reminder of what humans really are, and it made me feel ashamed. To this day, the organizers, particularly John Scher, take no responsibility for the events of that weekend. 20 years later, and this clueless fuck is still blaming things on Fred Durst for egging the crowd on while playing break stuff. Hyping up a crowd is what Fred Durst was paid to do in 1999. He was the head of one of the biggest rock bands in the world. What the fuck did you think was going to happen when you had him come out on stage? The documentary leaves out Durst telling the crowd not to let people get hurt, but did show him supporting the destruction of the scaffolding and structures. Look, I don't blame Fred Durst. Durst did what he did as the lead singer of Limp Bizkit. That's what he was there to do. That's why John Scher paid him to come to that festival. So, John Scher, you take fucking responsibility, you piece of shit. This documentary plays out like a real-life horror film, a modern-day Lord of the Flies enclosed by a painted peace wall, and stands selling overpriced water and tomato soup. It displays the white privilege that's still prevalent today and the unfortunate side of humanity when white people are angry and don't have a war to direct it at or a red hat directing them towards something to feel mad about. The shots of the crowd are simply insane, and the director has interviews with many attendees and artists. Most of the musical acts that talk in this doc have one or two lines about their experience. We get a lot more from Moby, who comes across as a bit of a pretentious weenie, especially when he's whining that his name isn't on the small plywood sign. The doc is well put together, flows at a good pace, and tells a solid story, even if some of the drama, namely the stuff about the DMX performance, feels a bit manufactured for the current climate. Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage is a terrifying documentary, but is definitely worth your time. You can find that right now on HBO Max. We're about to talk about some remakes, but first, let's talk about a film that's coming out. Today's sponsor, 14 Fists of McCluskey. 14 Fists of McCluskey is the number one movie in America. A gargantuan thrill machine. Watch as Van Johnson, Rod Taylor, and Rick Dalton try to survive behind enemy lines in Nazi-occupied Germany. It's the World War II film to end all World War II films. Rolling Stone calls it the roller coaster ride of the decade. 
Time says Rick Dalton has never looked better. Fox News says, not bad, but why did they have to be so mean to the Nazis? If you see one more movie for the rest of your life, make it 14 Fists of McCluskey, because the only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? <laughs> Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by fellow podcaster Dion Sanchez. She runs the highly successful show Words of Heart, a show about inspirational conversations with weekly guests with an emphasis on mental health, which is coming back for season three as we speak. Dion, how's it going? <laughs> it is going great, Jason. I'm surprised you picked up on the season three post I made on Twitter. Yes, I am coming back in... Less than a few short weeks. Yes, and that's more like a sequel and not a remake, which we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be going over <laughs> really great remakes. Um, but first, before that, tell my listeners a little bit about you and uh, and your show. Sure. Um, as Jason mentioned, my name is Dion Sanchez. I am the host of the Words of Heart podcast, which is about in-depth conversations of inspiration with an emphasis on mental health. Rather, the topic is rape or domestic violence or being rejected from one's family for having a different belief system. Um, we cover quite a wide range of topics, and it's literally speaking from the heart. Um, I like my podcast to be a form of comfort and acceptance, and um, that pretty much sums up my podcast in a nutshell. Um, as a matter of fact, um, August 23rd would make it a year since I launched it. Congratulations. Thank you. So we started around the same time because uh, this podcast just turned one as we're recording earlier this week. Oh, yay. What are some of your uh, favorite movies of all time that might not make our list today? Ah, favorite movies. Um, One of them is the movie that just recently came out called In the Heights. Um, I absolutely love that. Um, I'm an Afro-Latino American, so any film depicting um, the Hispanic culture, I was never really exposed to all that much. So um, I really strongly, I love that um, Lin-Manuel Miranda um, created that movie. And um, in spite what critics think of how he portrayed the Latino community, he did a fabulous job. So anyone who says otherwise is absolutely crazy. <laughs> so there's one movie. Um, the other movie, I would have to say Star Wars. Um, like the original? The, I, I'm going to go with the, the most recent um, of the trilogy. Um, the last, the Skywalker, I think it's Rise of Skywalker. Um, I think that was a pretty awesome ending. Um, Ray is like a female Jedi, and she just—I am probably spoiling it. Towards the like final climax of the movie, she like like engulfs all the Jedi powers from all the past Jedi, and just that is so absolutely awesome and mind blowing. Plus, it's one of the few movies that my dad introduced to me growing up, so that's like a pinnacle family movie in my household the star wars trilogy so cool um so that pretty much sums it up um i like that die hard movies too with you know um bruce willis i almost said the wrong bruce there <laughs> but <laughs> yeah um i like all different types of movies i'm not a big fan of horror though I can't be a fan of horror because I feel like it depicts too much of reality to actually happen in real life. Yeah, so. some some can, sure. All right, well, we're going to be talking remakes today. Top five remakes. What inspired that topic choice for you? What inspired the topic for me, um, obviously there's been a lot of remakes, probably more than either of us can count, but what really jump-started my suggestion for this top five choice is I watched a documentary called Everything is Remixed. And the premise of the documentary is how everything in our world is remixed. Songs, movies, books. And it got me thinking, is anything truly original? I mean, 
There's no point in creating a new idea when you can just steal somebody else's and add your name to it. Sure, and there are a lot of bad remakes out there, but we're going to be talking about some good remakes today. Dion, are you ready to get to the list? Yes, I am. You know what's going to happen? This is Top 5 Remakes. Now, I'm not going to be talking too much about two films that uh, are on my favorite remakes. Like, they are two of my favorite films of all time, but I've just, I've talked about them too much. That's The Thing and The Fly. I have come up with four remakes that I have not talked about extensively, so I'm excited about those. And a few that people might not even realize are remakes. My number five is one that I don't think a lot of people realize is a remake, and it's uh, a sentimental film for me from 1994, Angels in the Outfield. Dad, um, when we gonna be a family again? A boy searching for a future. I'd say when the angels win the pennant. And Williams and Norton collide, and the catch is blown. A coach running from his past. Are you cracking up, or is this a repeat of Cincinnati? No, no, it's nothing like that. And a team that's their only prayer. There's a thing called talent. They don't have it. God, if there is a God, maybe you could help him win a little. I'd really, really like a family. Two angels came out of the sky and they picked up Ed Williams. Great. A psycho kid. Oh, please, don't drink me. No, 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 Just call me Al. No one can see me or hear me but you. Oh, I did not know that was a remake. Yeah, this one's a remake of Angels in the Outfield from 1951. The stories change a little bit, and I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, Angels in the Outfield from 94 is about a a foster child named Roger, a young kid played by a very young Joseph Gordon-Levitt and his friend JP. These two cats like to sneak into baseball games to see the California Angels play back when they were the California Angels. And they're struggling. Last place. Terrible team. Now, Roger still has limited contact with his with his father. His, his mom died. He's still got limited contact with his dad, but he's in foster care. And he sees his dad and he asks, like, when are we going to be a family again? And his father says, I'd say when the angels win the pennant. It's a rude move by the father, but the, the kid, Roger, he's like, well, I got to make sure that these angels win the pennant. And he says a prayer to help the angels win, to have God help the angels win. And so he's watching a game and he sees angels come down to start helping the team win. And uh, he tells the manager, the manager's like, you know what, kid, you're a good luck charm. I don't care what's going on. We're going to keep you around. And the (laughs) angels start winning games and they make this surge during the second half to the top of their division. So it's a real underdog story with uh, with a really good ending as well. It's got a great cast in addition to the the two that I mentioned, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and then Danny Glover as the, the manager. You also have got Christopher Lloyd from the Back to the Future series. Tony Danz is in there, Neil McDonough and Adrian Brody. And a very young Matthew McConaughey is in here too. Like I said, it's a sentimental favorite. Yeah, it's a great cast. Both sentimental favorites. The original I really like too because the original, instead of being with the California Angels, it's the Pittsburgh Pirates and I'm a Pirates fan. And a huge baseball fan <laughs> as a kid. But you don't have to be a baseball fan to relate to the characters. The plot, again, sentimental. You can watch it with the whole family. The original is more focused around a terrible manager who's really kind of abusive to his team. And the angel speaks directly to him to say, hey, we'll help you out. But you, you got you to gotta cool it. You got to be a better person. And there was an element of a child in that one, but it's not nearly the focus, whereas Angels in the Outfield from 94, the focus is about Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character and uh, and gaining a family that he probably wouldn't have considered his family when the movie starts. So really, really good movie and one that you can watch with, with the whole clan at home. That's Angels in the Outfield from 1994. And I would suggest, if you like this movie, seek out the original from 1951. It's a good flick, too. I'll have to rewatch that. Um, I 
fairly certain I've only ever seen it once when I was a kid. And I just thought it was about baseball and angels, but I didn't really know the whole emotional plot as you were describing it. So I'm going to have to watch that again. What's number five on your list of best remakes? Number five. Um, This particular movie has been remade several times. Girl goes to a big fancy ball, meets a boy, then leaves because she has a curfew but opts to leave a glass slipper. But the boy is like, nah, I gotta see this girl again. So he becomes basically a stalker and tramps <laughs> all over the place to every girl in a five mile radius. It's like, girl, can you fit this slipper? Can you fit this slipper? Like that's totally normal. <laughs> so my top five choice is Cinderella, but my particular choice of Cinderella is the version with Brandy and Whitney Houston. From Walt Disney Home Video, Cinderella sparkles with performances that have critics raving. I like the way that sounds. Brandy is adorable. Jason Alexander is hilarious. Bernadette Peters is perfect. And the rest of the cast is all we could wish for. You've got two Prepare to be swept off your feet by Cinderella. Available to own on February 10th from Walt Disney Home Video. I absolutely love it. I can probably sing all the songs in the movie. It's probably one of the few movies that I feel depicts a Cinderella as African-American. Um, most Cinderella's, and I could be wrong here, actually, I don't think I'm going to be quite wrong, is depicted as Caucasian or mm -hmm. Other movies are centered around Caucasian fairy tales. So um, I think they did a good job of portraying this. Um, the fairy godmother is Whitney Houston. The queen is Whoopi Goldberg. Um, the king, I want to say his name is Victor Garber. Um, I think that's his name. He's Caucasian and he's the king. And the prince is like Hispanic or Indian. Um they did had a really ensemble cast and it was it was beautifully done. It's my favorite Cinderella movie of all time. Um I'm not a fan of the Disney Cinderella version that they remade. That's nice, but I think as far as Cinderella remakes go, this particular version does it justice. That's an interesting pick. I haven't seen this one before, but my obviously my wife huge Disney fan I'm sure she would want to see this version as well. I'm going to seek it out. This is the, the version that was made for TV, and uh, it probably just flew under my radar. And uh, yeah, I definitely need to check this out. Well, it's on Disney Plus, so... Oh, okay. <laughs> Put it on your radar. I will. And this is not going to be the first TV movie that comes up on this list, which is a teaser for later for me. <laughs> All right, number four for me, we're going to... This is probably going to be a little bit of a shock for some people, but I only have one horror movie on my list, and it's from 1988, The Blob. A generation ago, a classic changed the shape of terror. It's had 30 years to grow bigger, meaner, and faster. Now, through the terrifying vision of the director of Nightmare on Elm Street 3... The Blob is back. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. This one is a remake of The Blob from 1958, Steve McQueen's first film, which is, it's a good movie, but the original Blob is more of like a sci-fi film, and this remake from 1988 turns it more into a horror movie, like a schlocky B-horror movie, which I just have an absolute soft spot for. Directed by Chuck Russell, who had just a really odd career in Hollywood. Like, he first directed Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which is one of the best in the series. And then he directed The Blob. And then he waited, like, six years to make The Mask. Uh, two years for Eraser. And then he went, like, ten years before directing one episode of TV. And then six more before directing a John Travolta straight-to-DVD movie. So it's, like, just a really odd career for Chuck Russell. <laughs> This movie, though, it, take, it takes place in the small town of Aberville, Colorado, and this alien life form ball of goo comes down to Earth, starts consuming everything in its path, and it's growing as it goes. And so the military comes in to deal with it. 
There's a local punk kid played by Kevin Dillon, and he does not trust them, which leads to basically a three-way battle between the creature, these government men in hazmat suits, and then uh, Kevin Dillon and Shawnee Smith. It's a lot more violent than the original, has a way higher body count. It's also a lot funnier, I think, than the original. It plays it way tongue-in-cheek. Like I said, it's a B-movie vibe. It plays with all the schlock, gore, and the comedy moments that you've come to expect from those kind of movies. It's fun trash. It's really fun trash. And I think that the charm <laughs> of this remake still holds up. The Blob. It's got a great Blu-ray from Scream Factory, too. So get your hands on that if you're a fan of, of horror movies and you want to just see something really fun. The Blob from 1988. That is my number four. The Blob. That's supposed to be a real classic. Um, I'm surprised my... Um, I mentioned this a while back, how my dad exposes me to a lot of different movies outside of my list. <laughs> so, um, The Blob. Huh. I might have to watch that just to get the experience. Um, just to get the thrill of it. It's really good. Because that's not a movie I would normally watch. But if it has sci-fi, I can get with it, though. It does. It's And it's not like... Uh... It's not like super scary. It's more like tongue-in-cheek craziness, but it's definitely not something that you're going to watch and then have trouble sleeping afterwards. Number four for you. Number four. Um, this is considered to be an absolute classic in the movie genre. It is Footloose. We cannot be missing from our children's lives. They are ours to protect. Public dancing among Beaumont's minors will be in violation of the law. Mama, it's Brand. He's here. Hey, girls. I appreciate you taking me in. I really want to pull my own weight around here. If you can get this baby running, she's all yours. OK, the door sticks, and uh, the gas pedal's missing. A couple of the, uh, it, it, hey, it's a fixer up. He's cute. You think everybody's cute? Hey, watch where you're going, little guy. Sorry, man, I didn't see it. Where are you from? You talk funny. I talk funny? Mm-hmm. You should hit you from my end. What's up, man? I'm Willard. I'm Ren. McCormick. When it hopped on Netflix, um, both the original version, I watched it incessantly every single day after school, in high school. Um, then the new version came out, and I watched that every single day. I'm a big, huge fan of Footloose. Um, the plot... Um, basically, Ren McCormick hops into this really small suburban town, but um, comes to the realization that dancing has been banned. There's no dancing, loud music, you can't even drink alcohol. Um, and this all started because some seniors um, went to a high school party and they were drunk and boom, they get hit into a car accident and die. And that's when the reverend of the community decided to ban everything all because of that one unfortunate incident. But Rand, being the rebel he is, like, nah, I'm going to make some noise. And he, like, gathers up his friends and basically decides to protest the ban on dancing by creating a dance. So it's a wonderful movie. Um, Kevin Bacon does do the um, original character justice, so I can't really argue with that. But the remake, I think, does the movie justice. It, the thing about remakes is some classics are le better left alone, in my opinion. Um, Footloose could have been just as fine without a remake, but I love the remake version of it, and probably many people would disagree, but it still holds true to the premise, which is... Um, that dancing is banned and to keep shaking your ass off pretty much. <laughs> so <laughs> Cool. I've seen the original, but I've never seen the remake. I believe it's on Amazon. I'm not sure if it's still free, though. And the plot is essentially the same from movie to movie? Pretty much. Okay, cool. I will see if my wife wants to watch some Footloose then, because I'm always up for a good <laughs> dancing movie. My, uh, my number three has no dancing. No, no dancing in this one. Oh, no. This is a film that I bet a lot of people don't realize is a remake. It's from 1996, Ransom. The whole world now knows that my son, Sean Mullen, was kidnapped for ransom. This is what waits for the man who took him. This is your ransom. But this is as close as you'll ever get to it. Instead, 
I'm offering this money as a reward on your head. Why won't you pay off to save your son? You think I wouldn't do absolutely everything in my power to get him back? No use. If I don't get my son back, I'm going to dedicate my life to tracking you down. In a film by Ron Howard. You don't know where he is. You don't know him. Everybody, hold your fire. We have an eye on him. White male, armed with a handgun. You still have a chance to do the right thing. If you don't. Who got shot? Then God be with you, because nobody else on this earth will be. You kill him. You kill yourself. Hello. Give me back my son. Ransom. Rated R. Starts Friday, November 8th. Ransom is a remake of Ransom from 1956. This one's directed by Ron Howard, stars Mel Gibson, Gary Sinise, and Delroy Lindo. It's about a, uh, a multimillionaire named Tom Mullen. This is uh, Mel Gibson's character. And his son is kidnapped. Mullen cooperates with the kidnappers. He sets out to go and pay the ransom. However, when he's going to pay the ransom... A, a sequence of events happens that convinces him that the kidnappers have no intention of releasing his boy alive. So instead of paying the ransom to the kidnappers, he goes on live TV and announces that he's going to pay the ransom money to whoever turns in the kidnappers and ensures his son is safe. So he, he essentially takes the ransom money and puts a bounty on the heads of the kidnappers instead. Mel Gibson is fantastic as Tom, this panic-stricken father just pushed to his limits. Gary Sinise as this slimy detective is also really, really great. Ron Howard is one of these consistent directors in Hollywood that, like, some of, I, I don't find a lot of his films that entertaining, but it's <laughs> not because of his skill. I don't think that's any fault of his. I think it's just he picks really kind of vanilla projects that don't always interest me but ransom is great i think that he knows how to get the most from his actors and in this film i thought he built the suspense really well the score by james horner is also really good considering horner only had two weeks to write it because ron howard ditched howard shore's original completed music so he brought in his boy james horner Within like two weeks, knocked it out. Speaking of music, there's a room that the kidnappers keep Tom's son, Sean, in. To disorient him, they have allowed rock music playing at all times. And that was all Billy Corgan's music from the Smashing Pumpkins. So you got like <laughs> two sides of, of really fun, fun uh, music. The most compelling thing I think about Ransom is the gamble made by Tom. Like he's, he's exercising his skills as this risk-taking businessman. The bet, of course, is that somebody, maybe even one of the kidnappers themselves, will turn the child in and give up the partners because of the amount of money that's out there on their heads. And he knows, I think everybody has to know, like if that doesn't happen, not only will Tom never be able to live with himself, but his wife probably wouldn't be able to live with him either. And it, it, it's a situation that like any parent who watches this will have to think about. It's one of those where when you are done watching the movie, you're going to have that discussion with your significant other to say, like, what would what would we do in that scenario? The original is really good, too. If you get a chance, you know, seek out the 1956 version. It stars Glenn Ford and Donna Reed in the parental roles. And then it's Leslie Nielsen's first performance, too. There are some significant differences in that version. So well worth a watch for either one but ransom from 1996 is my number three wow i am certainly intrigued and it definitely makes me think i like all the unpredictability so i guess i will share my number third choice i don't think it's as cool as yours though, <laughs> but <laughs> my third choice is beauty and the beast I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. Hello? I want it more than I can tell. Come into the light. <gasps> For once it might be grand. What if she is the one? To have someone understand. Pleased to meet you. I want so much more than they've got planned. Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Rated PG. I know Disney has recently started making quite a few remakes. Um, not all the best, but their version of Beauty and the Beast with Emma Watson. Um, I don't really remember the actor of the Beast. Dan Stevens. 
okay, Dan Stevens. Yep. Um, I don't. Um, they portrayed it really well. Um, the first time I went to see it was in the theaters. Um, I had a date at the time, nice. and I was like very <laughs> impressed. Um, at how they stay true to the premise of the story. Um, the little be our guest, be our guest. Put our service to the test. I was singing along the entire time, <laughs> and my dad was probably like laughing at me. But they did um, much justice to the movie. Intelligent girl loves books. Kids end up being locked in a tower with a beast, and the only way to cure him of his ugly beastness is to plant true love's kiss. So yeah, classic story. Typical Disney fashion. Yep. Yep. It's got a great cast. Um, in my house, so my my wife likes a lot of likes to watch these remakes. I personally have banned all of the Disney remakes from my eyes because I just like, I think it's um, <laughs> most of the time they're lazy cash grabs. But this is one that I have kind of like wanted to check out secretly because Dan Stevens is in it, and I'm a big Dan Stevens fan after after seeing him in the guest. But it's also got like Stanley Tucci in there. It's got Ewan McGregor in there. Emma Thompson's in there as voices. And so it's it's been the one that I think out of all the Disney remakes, this one has been highest on my list. If I was to crack the seal on my uh, on my stance on Disney's remakes. (laughs) Number two for me is another one that I think people might not realize is a remake And I mentioned earlier when you brought up Cinderella that I was going to talk about a TV movie as well. In late late 80s, I want to say 1989, there was a TV movie called L.A. Takedown from Michael Mann. And Michael Mann later remade that movie, remade L.A. Takedown as Heat from 1995. You search for the scent of your prey and then you hunt them down. That keeps me sharp where I gotta be. In a world where violence is wholesale. The bank is worth the risk. You're up. There's a saga waiting to unfold. If I'm there and I gotta put you away, you are going down. You will not get in my way for a second. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer. Heat, rated R. Starts Friday, December 15th at a theater near you. Heat recently made my list of top five shootouts, and I think when most people think about Heat, that's what they remember, but the entire movie is an epic crime cat and mouse game. The difference between L.A. Takedown and Heat is night and day. L.A. Takedown is good, but it was shot in three weeks after only like 10 days worth of prep, and you can see the care and time that went into Heat, which took four months to shoot after six months of preparation, so nearly a year to make Heat while L.A. Takedown was made in a month. Uh, it's about hunters and their prey. Neil has Neil is uh, Robert De Niro's character. Him and his professional crime crew hunt to score big money targets like banks, vaults, armored cars. And Vincent Hanna, played by Al Pacino and his team of cops in Robbery Homicide, are hunting them down. There's a botched job. He leaves something at the scene, and now it's a cat and mouse game between De Niro and Al Pacino. The film has a killer cast. Of course, the focus here was in seeing De Niro and Pacino share the screen for the very first time, and that's what all the advertisements were about. And it did not disappoint. But my favorite person in this film is Val Kilmer, who had just an amazing run in the early 90s. He had The Doors, Tombstone, a small role in True Romance, and this all in the early 90s. Just amazing. Also has uh, Dennis Haysbert, Tom Sizemore, Ashley Judd, Natalie Portman, countless other people. The sound design is fantastic in this. The film feels like an epic. It's like three hours long. It it still holds up as, in my opinion, Michael Mann's best movie. And I'm still holding out hope that someday he'll make a film version of Police Story, which is a TV show that he had a hand in in, uh, I believe, the like late 70s, early 80s. But uh, come on, Michael Mann, what are you waiting for? Let's get Police Story up on, on the go. Heat, 1995, that is my number two. I am a fan of Robert De Niro, so I certainly have to check it out. Yeah, it's got a great um, I shootout. I have been exposed to many films of Al Pacino, though. I'm sure I've seen at least one or two of his films. I just can't think of the names off the top of my head. What about The but Godfather? It has Robert... 
Oh, oh, <laughs> the yes, I've seen The Godfather. <laughs> the Godfather, okay. Oh, I've, I've only seen the first one. I've only seen the first one. I know there's like three or two. There's three, yeah. I certainly saw the first one, and it was pretty good. Um, I know it's like the most quoted movie of all time. It is even quoted in You Got Mail, which is another great movie. <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. Awesome movie. Yeah, I mean, it's if you want to see Al Pacino, watch number one. If you want to see Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, watch number two. Because De Niro plays a young... <laughs> godfather young marlon brando in that in the second one and if you want to watch a great remake that's not on my list and i'm guessing that it's not on your list uh scarface is a great remake with al pacino scarface is considered a remake yeah scarface is a remake of a 1932 movie also called scarface all right dion number two for you this number two pick was hard because it was almost number one but I wanted to make it difficult. So my number two choice is The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan. Hallie and her dad are from California. Annie and her mom are from London. On July 29th, Annie and Hallie are going to meet for the first time. That's my mom. That's my dad. And you and I are like, like sisters. We're like twins. From the makers of Father of the Bride. I think we should switch places. If we switch, they'll have to meet again. Welcome home, kiddo. Dad. This summer, two sisters are setting the perfect trap. It seems like it's been forever. I have no idea. To bring their parents back together. This is an emergency. Dad's in I am marrying your father whether you like it or not. Twins find out that, oh, this girl has my face at camp. Um, Totally grew up with one parent in California, the other one in London. And they come to the realization that they are related through a rib-torn picture and some Oreos and peanut butter, <laughs> pretty much. So, um... It's a very classic movie. Um, all these little girls want is to bring their parents together. Um, it has Meredith Blake, which is an iconic evil stepmom who is a selfish gold digger bitch. Um, <laughs> I don't cuss really often, but she is a bitch. <laughs> Certainly, I thought that when I was little, even though I couldn't really say the word bitch. But it's an awesome iconic movie i never did see the original though but i'm gonna make a note to do that because it is a really good movie look at this we got all kinds of different remakes that are available on disney plus right now like half of our lists are on disney plus <laughs> yep disney plus is the pinnacle of remakes yeah pretty much and this one uh, is a remake of the 1961 film the parent trap so which is probably available on Disney Plus, I assume, because that was a Disney movie as well. My number one to the grand finale. This is another one that I don't think many people realize is a remake. It is one of my favorite action films of all time, 1994's True Lies. For 15 years, Harry Tasker's been leading a double life. Hi, it's Helen. Is he in? Harry's in a sales meeting, Mrs. Tasker. He's protected the country. He's faced the enemy. But when his wife finds out... Harry! Who's going to protect him? Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis, in a James Cameron film. What can I say? I'm a spy. True Lies. Rated R. Starts Friday, July 15th at theaters everywhere. True Lies is a remake of the French film La Totale from 1991. It stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Harry Tasker, who leads a double life. At work, he's a government agent with a license to do whatever he wants. And at home, he pretends that he's a dull, boring computer salesman. And in his work life, he's on the trail of a stolen nuclear weapon that are in the hands of these fanatic terrorists when... He finds out that his wife is seeing another man. Now, he doesn't know if she's cheating, but he knows that she needs some adventure in her life because she is hanging out with this dude, Simon, played by Bill Paxton in just an amazing role. And Harry decides to give her this adventure, juggling his pursuit of the terrorists in one hand and an adventure for his wife on the other, while showing he can tango all at the same time. 
This is surprisingly faithful in terms of the plot, aside from in the original, the character's name is different as Francois and his, the kid is a boy versus a girl. There's a teenage girl that's in this one that there's a plot around. This is it true lies the perfect action comedy. It is pitch perfect all around. Arnold and Tom Arnold, who plays his partner, they they play off of each other amazingly with the comedy. Jamie Lee Curtis plays his wife, and she is fantastic as Helen. Bill Paxton just steals the show as this used car salesman slash con man who is trying to make Jamie Lee Curtis think that he's a secret agent, when in reality her husband is. It is so funny as as his plans unravel. It's got some just classic scenes, and Bill Paxton's great in everything. He Recently just made my list for uh, top five John Hughes characters, which was great. Uh, It is really, really funny how masterfully the comedy is used in this film because it feels like a spoof, but it never feels like slapstick. It's perfectly balanced, riding this line of being overblown, but still feeling sort of grounded as Arnold is like spouting one-liners as he's killing bad guys. It's also got possibly the only horse versus motorcycle chase on film, but if it's not the only one, it is certainly the best. Disney, Fox, if you're listening, put True Lies out on Blu-ray. What's wrong with you? Put it out already. Physical media, put it out. Put it out on 4K. I don't care. Put it out somewhere. I know that you got a high-quality <coughs> master. It's on Amazon. Please, we're all begging you. Uh, I couldn't agree more with your choice. It's probably the first choice in your list that I've actually seen. Nice. I absolutely love that movie. It is awesome. Uh, Number one. I perhaps should start with some that did not make the list. There's Romeo and Juliet. Um, being the romantic at heart that I am, I can't mention it because there's too many versions of it, including Leonardo DiCaprio's version. There's The Lion King, which I absolutely refuse to see. That was better left as a cartoon. Um, there's Tarzan, um, the one with the really fancy Alexander Skirkoff, whose name I can't even pronounce. Oh, Skarsgård, and- yeah. And Tomb Raider, which was actually quite a movie, which should come out with a sequel, if it does. Um, But my number one choice is Mulan. Ancestors, watch over my daughter Mulan. If her identity is discovered, she will be killed. My journey was impossible. But it is my duty protect my family. I'm Hua Mulan. In theaters March 27th. I absolutely love the remake. I had some doubts because they didn't have Mushu, which is such a funny, humorous character. And it ties into my childhood a bit, but they did the movie justice to staying to the premise of the movie and being a warrior and I consider myself to be a warrior in a sense so um, I think they did a good job of embodying the whole essence of the whole movie at its core and that's a woman who's trying to prove herself and she disguises herself as a male to get into the Chinese army and um, there's many other new elements to it. There's like a female um, witch or sor- sorcerer that they introduce. And it's a wonderful movie. I loved how they justified and stayed true to the character of the original movies. And I wanted to do a podcast episode so badly <laughs> after seeing it. But um, I don't know if anyone saw it. So I it would have been lame to do it by myself. So. Yes, that is my number one choice. Move on. I was intrigued to s- about this one just because Donnie Yen's in there, Jet Li's in there, um, Jason Scott Lee is in there. So it's got a great cast. It's just, again, Disney remakes. I just, uh, <laughs> I, I haven't gotten over, like, I feel like Disney's remakes, and this one a little bit less so because they did change things about the plot, but I feel like their shot-for-shot remakes like The Lion King are just, a little bit lazy, and I'd like to see them get more creative with the remake. So hopefully they keep going in the way that they did with Mulan. Absolutely. I can't I can't see Lion King. I, I just, I can't do it. I can't do it. Which is funny, because 
Lion King was kind of a ripoff of a uh, Japanese film called Kimba the White Lion. Huh. I did not know that. Well, good list. I had a couple honorable mentions that uh, that I wanted to bring up. Man on Fire with Denzel. Great remake. Ocean's Eleven. Freaky Friday with uh, Lindsay Lohan. That's a remake. I mentioned The Thing. I mentioned The Fly. The Ring. And then Scarface, which I had talked about with Al Pacino. Awesome. I almost mentioned Freaky Friday as part of my list, but I didn't want to go Lindsay Lohan crazy. So. <laughs> Only one Lohan allowed. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, before we get you out of here, tell us a little bit about what's in store for season three of Words of Heart. Uh, what's in store for season three? Well, um, the first episode I already recorded Um just to give you a little exclusive, um, my first guest for season three is my sister. Um, she has profound knowledge when it comes to um, equality and social justice and the Black Lives Matter movement and how there's different meanings to that particular movement and that, that the meaning that's constructed in people's heads is far different to other people in regards to African-Americans and it really pushes the envelope, which I've never done in any episode of my podcast. Cause I feel like some matters are better left in the public eye. I don't want to like stir a can of worms when it comes to my podcast, but for this particular episode, I was okay with like stirring the can a bit because it's, we share, we discuss a lot of topics that really don't get discussed enough. So that's a little words of heart exclusive for you and your audience, which I'm sure many people are going to figure out now because I just shared it. So um, that is in store for at least the first episode. Um, I did an interview earlier today on hypnotherapy, which I've never discussed either. And I'm just really excited about everything that's in store for this season. Um, I have a theme song now. Nice. So... Um, it really reflects and it's a really nice, calm melody and has acoustic guitar in it, which I'm a real lover of acoustic guitar. So, um, I'm glad that was incorporated into the theme song. I have a new icebreaker game. Um, it's called Song Association, where I give you a word and you have 15 seconds to either sing or rap the word I give you is either in the title or in the song lyrics so <laughs> yeah I'm really excited I'm particularly excited about the anniversary episode um many people have sent in like audio reflections of how my podcast has resonated with them and it's one thing to like talk like to a screen um because you have no idea who's listening but to actually physically hear what people think of my podcast is really heartwarming and shows that I am making a difference and just that I'm my platform is serving its purpose and helping others in a positive way very cool so you can find words of heart on any podcast provider wherever you find your pods you'll find words of heart season three coming soon with uh, new guests new games and a new theme song which sounds pretty cool. Where else can people follow you on social media? Social media. They can follow me on Instagram at heartwarrior25. I usually post video previews of my podcast interviews from time to time. So give you a little taste and a sneak peek. Um, to draw you in so you can watch the full episode, which you can also find on YouTube. I've started integrating my podcast on YouTube as well. And of course, on Facebook um, and Twitter. Twitter's probably the most engagement as far as my podcast goes. Um, my Twitter handle is heartwarrior24. So it's a really similar handle to my Instagram one, which is one small number difference. But um, I'm fairly active. Um, you can reach me at any given time. I never sleep, so <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty easy to get in contact with me um, about anything that you want to discuss or just need a virtual hug 
or if you even want to hop on my podcast, but I get a lot of responses 24-7, so um, it will probably be like 20, 25 before I can even get you on. Just kidding, but um, I do try to share people's stories as much as I can, but considering I'm the only creator of my podcast, it is overwhelming, and I do got to put my own mental health in check first and foremost, so... Heart Warrior 24 on Twitter, Heart Warrior 25 on Instagram, and you can find the show wherever you find your shows. So go listen to Words of Heart. Do you have a favorite remake that wasn't mentioned? Let me know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might just make it to the show. If you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listened to this podcast and tell your friends. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some great remakes.